You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. I've been looking forward to this all day. Um, and that's not to be invidious for all the other sessions, but it's a rare opportunity to be in conversation with Europe's first female imam, um, and especially someone who's founded a woman's mosque, uh, Mariam Mosque, uh, in Copenhagen, and, and someone who has, um, I mean, you haven't said this, I'm saying this, someone who's been very brave, I think, uh, brave to um, invert dominant orders narratives of what Islam is about um, and to challenge what one perceives to be a very dominant male uh, is, uh, religion um, and someone who is uh, very kind of committed to drawing a different narrative, perhaps a more honest narrative about Islam uh, and also um, being involved in its evolution. One of the things that struck me um, I when thinking about this session with you is that since 9-11, we've made um, Islam and Muslims, um, de we've demonized that community and that religion. We've made Islam synonymous with terror. And actually, the impact on the streets in terms of how we cohabit in, in the streets of Europe in particular, uh, it, there's, a, there's a whole new symbolism of people who wear the uh, hijab or, 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 or range of different clothes that from, from the communities that are so diverse that represent Islam. And it creates a kind of different frisure on the streets, actually. And it has done. And you can see how there's a retreat of values uh, that seem to be going in opposite directions. Uh, not least, this is what I was just sharing with Shireen, that um, when you think about what's happening in Europe with the rise of ideologues, the rise of ideologues um, that you're seeing in the east of Europe, a real trenchant view towards a kind of a, a, a right-wing Christianity ideology that's emerging. And you see that uh, happening across in the States in particular, has been for some time, but you're actually seeing, witnessing it much more so in a brilliant way in Europe. And a real, a real discourse about the fact that um, Islam does not belong to Europe and Islam, Islam and Muslims are not part of Europe. I remember having a conversation with some journalists from um, Budapest um, and, and also from Warsaw and how the opinions on the streets around Islam are just so virulent and so um, trenchant and so unfortunate that actually now is the time, if not ever, to remind ourselves of what happened 100 years ago, but actually think through how we support uh, and uh, give, I suppose, a sense of echo to what you're doing. Um, so um, Shireen Khan Khan, who is, as I said, we're in conversation with uh, for the next half an hour or so. Shireen, tell me a little bit about, I think people would be interested in understanding a little bit about you. Uh, and what motivated you to take this brave, bold step? Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you so much for the introduction, and thank you for the invitation here. Ramadan Karim, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. I'm really honored to be here. And um, actually, I was brought up between East and West, between Christianity and Islam. And I think that everything starts in the family everything. So actually, all these small details happening in the family, the first real community that you grow up in, is really important to who we become. And I was brought up with a Finnish mother. She's an immigrant. And my father is a political refugee from Syria. And 
He used to be very active, and he came to Denmark and met my mother, and he was actually supposed to go to Sweden because all his other activist friends were in Sweden, but then he saw my mother in the middle of the street, and he actually knew the second he saw her that this is the woman that I want to marry. So he proposed to her, and of course she said, no, thank you, <laughs> but they married uh, a month later, and they're still married. And my father, he is a feminist, not only in his way of, you know, in his speaking, but also in his actions. So how is, how is a person a feminist? It's, it's in all the details that he's unable to eat, he's unable to put his fork, fork into the meat until everybody is eating, and he serves the women in the family. And since I was very young, he introduced me to... Sufi literature, uh, Ibn Arabi, Rabia Ladawiya, and he always used to quote Ibn Arabi, who said that the perfect man is a woman. So I think that my way into Islamic feminism was through the Sufi literature, and Sufism is the spiritual path within Islam. And later on, I started to study uh, more contemporary Islamic feminist literature, and I was also inspired by Amina Wadud, Fatima Menisi, Margon Bethren, and others. But it was actually, I think that what I saw in my family, that is the main reason why I'm here today. Because I was told that you can be anything. And I think that really affected me. So I did my thesis on Sufism and Islamic activism in Syria, Damascus, in the Abu Nur Mosque, which is one of the largest centers for Sunni Islamic activism. And actually, I had my first vision of a mosque with female imams back in 1999, when I was doing my thesis, and I was watching the Friday khutbah by Sheikh Ahmed Kuftaro, Friday after Friday. And I started to wonder, what would it feel like? How would it be like? What would it sound like if the mufti was a female or if the imam was a woman? And then I came back to Denmark and I founded uh, this Association of Critical Muslims. That was the first association with um, a female Muslim leadership. So it was the first time that we had female Muslim leaders, spokespersons in Denmark. But it took us 15 years to reach to the point where we are today. It took us 15 years to actually establish a mosque with female imams, as we did 15 years later. And we'll all want to know this, because I mean, what you, I suppose, pay homage to is the fact that it's actually change takes time, and you have to be patient with it. Um, and it, you have to be kind of living with it for some time before you get this kind of sense of growth and energy, which you're getting at the moment. But along that journey, especially in the recent times, when you, when you announced that you're going to open the mosque, what kind of reaction did you get from local people, but also national politics? What was it? Because I can imagine, it, obviously it was reported on, it's been talked about. What kind of reaction did you get and how did you respond to it? Actually, um the reactions from the Muslim communities in Denmark were quite moderate. They were not happy about the decision, but many of the communities, they know me because I have been uh, active in the debate about Islam. I have written four books about Islam, and so they know me, and they know that I tend to study dangerous topics in a less dangerous way. 
and I always try to nuance the debates about Islam in Europe, also the debate about Islamism. So, but of course, when you change a structure, you change the power balance and people will get upset. But I think primarily uh, the reservations were about um, a lack of knowledge about our own Islamic tradition because in the first house mosque in the Islamic tradition, that was the house mosque of our beloved prophet, peace be upon him. In that house mosque, two women led the prayer for other women, and that was Aisha and Umm Salama. Mm -hmm. And you will also find hadith stories telling that the prophet went to the house mosque of Umm Waraka and actually asked her to be the imama and to lead the prayer for her household, consisting, according to some Muslim theologians, of both men and women. But there's a dispute about whether it was only women or men and women. But it is a fact that three women at least led the prayer at the time of the prophet or after the death of the prophet um, in Medina. So it's actually not a reformation. It's not a new phenomenon. And historically, we have mosques with female imams in China mm. since the 1820s. 18th century, yeah. Mm. Yes, in Canada, in US, South Africa, in Morocco, we have these female murshidats. They do not lead the prayer, no. but they serve as imams. I mean, they're Islamic spiritual care persons, and they enlighten people about Islam. So, and in Germany, we have Halima Krausen in Hamburg, Rabia Müller in Köln, and, and they just started a mosque in Berlin recently. So, historically, it's also not a new phenomenon. But in Scandinavia and in Europe, it's quite rare still. What happened was that after the death of the Prophet, the second caliph, Omar, he forbade women to lead the prayer for other women. So actually, when Muslims today in 2018 deny women the basic right of leading the prayer or giving the khutbah or disseminating the Islamic message, they are following in the footsteps of Omar and not in the footsteps of our beloved prophet, Muhammad. Which is a controversial statement in its own right, I imagine, that will create a lot of discussion. But in terms of the, the national press, though, in terms of, did you get a lot of, uh, was there a lot of uh, discussion about what you were doing? in the national press, yeah. and, yes. and also what were the politics like? What, what did political leaders make of what you were doing? Uh, actually, I had death threats from the yeah. right-wing parties uh, in Denmark, more Islamophobe, Islamophobic uh, people. Um, and I think it's because that we are actually able to change the concept of Islam in Denmark. And, they st and I, it's so difficult to hold on to the narrative that Muslims are suppressed or Muslim women are suppressed when they can see Muslim women taking the lead and disseminating a more spiritual uh, approach to Islam. So I think they see us as a greater threat than Islamists uh, in their eyes because we are actually able to change the narrative and they want to hold on to this uh, narrative of Islam as a suppressive religion. And the media? Media, media response to you? Uh, we have very positive mm -hmm. media uh, coverage mostly, um, and the Maria Mosque went worldwide within one month. So it, it's actually, we went all the way to China and to Europe and, and the Middle East, so it, it, and it happened quite soon. So we, we see that we are very humble to the fact that the Maria Mosque, a small mosque in Copenhagen, went worldwide, and we try to use, use this fact uh, wisely in order to 
because we have a voice now mm. and we try to use it wisely in order to, to change the concept of Islam. And I think it's, it is possible. Sometimes we people, we go on claiming that it's impossible to change a structure because this structure has been normalized for decades, this patriarchal structure. But it is actually possible to change a structure. And I think that's the message that I want to give today to you because you are all uh, leaders and, and, and game changers that it is possible but somebody has to make that change. Mm. And sometimes we do a lot, we spend a lot of time on, on talking and talking, but I do believe that as a scholar, as an activist, you have to put your, active or your knowledge into activism in order to create change. But also to be patient, because I mean, so there's a sense that actually you can, the, in the world, the social media world we, lo we live in, where you can get a campaign of several million people changing a decision, there's a, there's a, there's a generation growing up that doesn't have the patience, uh, uh, potentially, yes. that you described of 15, you know, you, you, you have a long-term goal, you knew that actually it's going to have to take some resolve and resilience to get there. Yes, and we prepared ourselves, because it was not a bright idea we had two, three years ago. Mm. It has been 15 years under its way. And I also, when we started the mosque, our slogan was that we should not burn all the bridges behind us. Because if you burn all the bridges, you cannot be a, a bridge builder. But eventually, I also realized that just by starting a mosque with female imams, you are burning a thousand bridges. Yes. So it, it is, I mean, that's the fact. In the Maria Mosque, we, um, we do interfaith marriages, and that's something new in Scandinavia and also in Europe. Uh, we do interfaith, we conduct interfaith marriages between Muslim women, faithful, practicing Muslim women. And in, in my cases, I did 30 Islamic marriages within the last one and a half year, and half of them were interfaith marriages. And it has been uh, practicing faithful Christians. Wow. And Tunisia, as the first Muslim country in the world, they changed the law in December last year, and they actually allow Muslim women to marry non-Muslims. And I do believe that's a good way to start. And it could, not now, but in the future, I think it could create a domino effect. I know that lots of people want to ask you questions, but I have one last question. Yes. How have the muftis and the imams reacted to you in the region? I... Uh, Actually, I always focus on the positive reactions. Sure. Because when you focus on the positive reactions, that's the narrative that you send out to the world, and it becomes more legitimate to support um, initiatives like this. So I would like to tell you the story about the Grand Imam from Indonesia, from one of the third largest mosques mm. in the world. He has 200,000 Muslim participants every, for his Friday prayer every week. He came to the Maria Mosque, he blessed the mosque, and he prayed in the mosque. And he actually also, like my father, quoted Ibn Arabi. That was quite funny. Uh, we also had the pleasure of, um, of the company of Sheikh Fadlallah from South Africa. He's a Sufi Sheikh. Um, and I met uh, a mufti from Al-Azhar in um, Deutsche Welle. I know that Jafar is here, some, and he's not in this room, but he's at the conference. And he was not very optimistic about the Maya Mosque. He, was, he thought that it was a conspiracy. But I think that, uh, I, I mean, I don't take it too seriously. Okay, all right. 
Can we have mics, people? Please. And sorry, I know I keep on asking, but you have to say who you are again. Yeah. Hi, I'm Negar Mortazavi. I'm a journalist. Hello. Hi. Um, originally from Iran. Do you also have interfaith connections? Like, what about, we talk about mosques, but what about the other um, religious institutions, especially Christianity, all kinds of churches here in the U.S.? What is the reaction, or at least in your country, from other churches or religious leaders? Um, um, actually, we are preparing a conference. Uh, it will be like a global manifesto where we're going to gather all the existing female imams around the world and some leading uh, priests, uh, rabbis, and scholars within Islam uh, from all over the world. And the event will take place in Münster. In Münster, they just started uh, an Islamic center. It's called the Is uh, Islamic Center for Th Islamic Theology. They have uh, 800 students, uh, five professors within uh, Islamic theology. And we're going to have it there. And the idea is to gather all these uh, people, uh, leaders within different religions, and also leading scholars. And then we're going to discuss seven points. Um, uh, we want to discuss the, the point of interfaith marriage, women's right to divorce, um, and, and, and five other points. So the idea is to gather all these great voices and to sign the manifesto and to gather all the theological proofs for interfaith marriages or Muslim women's right to divorce and, and, and the other topics. So we do uh, connect with other religions and cooperate with leaders from other religions. I just met uh, Delphine. Um, I met her when I was vis visiting the French president a few months ago. So I also have... Uh, a good cooperation with uh, with female rabbis. Thank you, gentlemen here. Hi, I'm I'm Bjorn, and I'm a fellow Scandinavian and, and kind of a fan who's been following uh, from afar. I work uh, a lot on violent extremism and and such issues, and uh, so so. One of, one of my questions is really, Scandinavia likes to kind of promote itself as, as very liberal and open-minded in many ways, but still, Scandinavia has been fairly slow to accept the, the diversity within Islam, if you like. Uh, and I'm wondering kind of if you can say something about, about how that um, came to happen, but also um, how, how that's now transforming uh, in part due to your work, but also, um, sort of problem in Denmark has also been the, the issue of the image of, of Islam being shaped by organizations like Call to Islam, the Call to Islam, which is a uh, fairly um, dodgy organization, um, and, and the recruitment to, to, um, um, for people to join ISIS, um, and also things like the, the attack in uh, Kristallgade um, and the synagogue, at the synagogue there in 2015 it was. Um, and so in context, it's also the last question, um, how is interfaith kind of work going with the uh, Jewish community and the Christian community internally in Copenhagen? And a whole Another range one? of other questions <laughs> that I should not uh, go into because okay. I ask way too long and complicated questions. Okay. Thank you. 
thank you for your question. I do believe that since September 11 and also after the Khartoum crisis in 2006, uh, the debate about Islam in Denmark ha has been based on threat arguments. And what characterizes threat arguments is that they are based on fear and they are irrational and they are based on feelings. And I still feel that it's the same situation now. So we are really in need of alternatives. And I do believe that we as Muslims, we have to rec reclaim uh, the Islamic tradition. We have to show the world that Islam is a peaceful religion, that we have an enormous source <laughs> within our Islamic tradition, the whole Sufi path within Islam, which is a, a part of classical Islamic theology, really has something, really has a potential. Um, because within this, on this, when you're on the Sufi path, you always often focus on what unites us as people. So our aim is to, I mean, we have established the Maria Mosque, but it's not only a mosque where people come to pray. We also started an Islamic academy where we, once a month, uh, we teach um, uh, the participants in Islamic philosophy, Arab philosophy, Sufism, Islamic feminism, the Arabic language um, and, and other topics, Islamic law. So I do believe that we have a new generation of Muslims who have placed themselves on the knowledge production. And therefore, we will see new narratives on Islam in Europe in, in the future and, and in the rest of the world. It's inevitable. So no matter how intensely the anti-Islamic propaganda will um, spread, it is, you know, this new generation of Muslims, they will challenge it. And, and I think that's really something important. Our vice president in the Maryam Mosque, uh, Sa'ar al-Jashi, he just became a PhD in Islamic philosophy last year. And now one of his books on Arab philosophy just entered the curriculum at Copenhagen University at the Faculty of Philosophy. I studied philosophy. And when I studied philosophy, there was not a single page about uh, Islamic philosophy or Arab philosophy and its contribution to Western civilization. So I do believe that these small, small steps can, can create a change in the future. Uh, we do cooperate with um, Shir Hatsafan. It's uh, progressive Jews in Denmark. So we, we do cooperate broadly also with other religious communities. Just, you'll just get a mic, one second. Again, say, say who you are. Hi, my name is uh, Lena, I'm from Saudi Arabia. And I just wanted to comment that it's very interesting that you called your mosque Maryam Mosque. And I just wanted to add that we were talking here and I was saying that Islam, we view ourselves as Muslim as an extension of the great religions, Judaism and Christianity. And Maryam happens to be the only female name mentioned in the Holy Quran. That's it. You will not find another female name per se mentioned in, in, the, in the Quran. So, and just one point about interfaith marriages. I think just because the audience maybe may not know that interfaith marriages has no problem in mainstream Islam for a man who is a Muslim to marry um, a non-Muslim, but but I think what you were trying to say it was uh, for the female. Uh, that's yes, yeah, Muslim women marrying non-Muslims. Uh, there is a chapter named after Maryam in in the in the Quran. So, so it's the only chapter which is named after a woman in the Quran, and we see her as a unifying figure, the one who unifies and the one who transforms. 
I just wanted to add that um, according to the sources or the hadith that I spoke to you about, um, where women lead the prayer for other women, if you want to read more about it, it's, uh, the source is Ibn Sa'd. He was a historian from the 18th century in Baghdad. And he has written a biographical lexicon called Kitab al-Tabakat al-Kabir. And it consists of eight volumes. And the seven volumes are about the men who followed the Prophet in Medina. But the eight volume is only about the women. And this is in the eight volume, uh, which is a story left untold. You will find these uh, hadiths. And this is also why three out of four law schools, they actually accept that uh, uh, women lead the prayer for other women. So it's not controversial at all. No, it's a social construct, as you as you as you've noted, um, and you know, uh, the time will take. But it's at least you're 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 sowing a seed that will hopefully fertilize across a wider wider region and and beyond. Shala, you wanted to come in again. Say who you are. <coughs> Hello, Shireen. I'm Shada Islam from Friends of Europe. Hello. And the do- and the mother of a daughter called Mariam, actually. So <laughs> very pleased that you played the mosque, Mariam. Uh, I just wanted to come back to your. You just mentioned it very briefly. You've seen Emmanuel Macron. Yes. You said. And to come back to what my colleague Damendra was saying about the demonization of Islam in many of our societies and the rise of the far right, etc. Do you see a political uh, force within you as well to engage with the leaders, including some of the nasty people uh, in, in many of our governments, but also in the far right parties? Do you see a political drive within you to actually try and change that narrative, that toxic narrative around Islam and Muslims? Thank you for your question. Yes, I do. I do believe that... We, as Emmanuel Macron, even though he's on the right wing, he's still, um, I mean, he studied philosophy and I see him as a new kind of world leader. And the fact that he invited me, a female imam and, and a female rabbi, Delphine Ovelier, it says something about him. And in France, they have a tradition uh, of secularism or laïcité, and some of the former president, especially Jacques Chirac, he interpreted laïcité as a consequent separation between religion and politics. And now we have a new president who actually do not define laïcité in the same absolute manner. And I think that's very important and 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 good because he invites religious leaders, uh, spiritual leaders, in order to find a way to communicate. And he doesn't only see religion as a part of the problem, but also religion as a part of the solution. So I, I, I think there is hope. Gentlemen here, please. Thank you, Tarek Yusuf, Brookings Doha Center. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure to listen to you, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to ask a question. Uh, and I'd say this is a, a broader question uh, for you and maybe for some of us. Uh, do you see yourself, for example, as a, as a model for Muslims in Europe, uh, for Islam in Europe? Or do you see yourself as a model for Islam and Muslims, period? Uh, this matters a lot in how people see and interpret and understand your emergence in a particular context that may have promoted, encouraged, and embraced you, as opposed to elsewhere where, in fact, a host of non-religious issues might stand in the way. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you that question, partly because I, I am concerned at times when certain perceptions or models of Islam 
that are promoted elsewhere are somehow pushed then, projected, and presented to the Muslim world with all of its complexities and problems as the way to go, as opposed to something that has to evolve organically from within. Thank you for your question. Um, in the Quran, it is stated that Allah has created a world of multiplicity because Allah wants us to want multiplicity so as to understand Allah's unity. And this is also, it's actually also the essence when we pray five times a day. It's a reminder of Tawheed, the unity and the multiplicity that God has created. When we bend down, we try to be close to God. We, we try to let go of our own ego, our ambitions. And, and then when we raise, when we stand up, we greet our brothers and sisters, be it Muslims or Jewish or Christians or Hindus or whoever. So we are accepting the multiplicity that God has created when we stand. So the prayer is a movement, a mental movement and a physical movement between unity and multiplicity. So why do I say this? I say this because... In the Maryam Mosque, our aim is to represent that beauty of multiplicity. So we accept our aim is not to demonize or uh, uh, the Islamist position or the traditional, traditionalist position or the conservative position. It's to create a clear alternative. It's to, it's to create an alternative to a new generation of Muslims who do not feel at home in the existing mosque communities and I know because we have a new generation now, especially young women, also converts, who say that finally we feel at home. We feel that we can identify ourselves with the message that is being disseminated through the khutbah. In, in many of the mosques in Copenhagen, the imams, they speak about paradise lies under the feet of the mother. But it's talking and we don't see it in practice in real life. So, to answer the question shortly, uh, I try to resemble the multiplicity that God has created. And I think that in order for the Maria Mosque to grow stronger, it's so important in the future that the mosque is not only identified with me as a person. So, I really, my aim is to educate a new generation of female imams so that the Maria Mosque can be represented by the multiplicity. Um, we have female imams with the scarf and without the scarf. We have female imams who are, who are very different. And, but we are all in the Sufi path, and we all try to resemble the multiplicity that God has created. I don't know if the answer is uh, uh, what you ask for. I'm sure, I mean, the bottom line is you're not trying to replicate a model and shove it down someone else, some other country's no, throat. No, <coughs> You're going to the essence of what your context speaks to um, and the essence of the text, but also what is meaningful in the here and now yes. for the communities that you're serving in, in yes. and your own faith. Um, <coughs> when I led the first Friday prayer in Copenhagen, I was putting on my galabia and the scarf, and I have four children in the age of six till 13. And my youngest daughter at that time, she was five years old, because it was in August 2016. She, um, her friend was visiting our house, and she's a non-Muslim, and she whispered in my daughter's ears, uh, she said, Halima, what is an imam? And Halima, 
she looked very strong and proud and I will never forget the look in her eyes and the way she said with a confident voice that a female, an imam is a woman who's doing great things. So <laughs> it is possible to change a concept that has been male-dominated in, in a five-year-old's mind. So I, I really would like to come back to that point that that it is possible to change these structures. And it's so crucial that we as Muslims change these patriarchal structures. Uh, and we have to change the patriarchal structures within religious institutions. We also have to challenge the patriarchal readings of the Quran. So it's, it's both the readings and the structures. Because what happens in the mosque goes way beyond the mosque. Mm. It affects the families. It affects society. And it affects individuals. And it's really, uh, it's really important because the Friday prayer is important because it happens systematically, Friday after Friday. So you're actually able to disseminate uh, the Islamic message Friday after Friday. So it is crucial at so many levels. And I think it's so strange to think about that, that women and men are equal in the Quran. We, both, we are both obliged to seek knowledge and to disseminate knowledge. And still we, women and men, brothers and sisters, we have accepted and normalized these patriarchal readings and structures for so many years. We accept the fact that Muslim women today all over the world are not even able to, to obtain an Islamic divorce. It's only the man in many places who has the right to divorce that's a patriarchal reading and that's a patriarchal practice. And we know that it's not, I mean, it's not written in the Quran. We know that it's opposite to our belief and still we let it happen. So the aim is to really to, to change the practice and, and the structure as well. One of the, th the themes that's run throughout the day, we started the morning with the question about what drives people into change making. You're a clear example of, of one aspect of that. But I go back to my point about your connection with imams. <clears throat> and I remember being in the UK when I was working in the UK at, the, at a national agency that was about racial equality. And at that time, this was about over 20 years ago, we knew that the importation of imams directly from certain states was having a corrosive e effect on young men in particular. And it took over 15 years for the state to do something about it. It, just said it kind of took a very liberal view, a very white liberal view, saying, actually, this is not an issue and it's something we don't want to tamper with. Yet now, you know, we know that that has been a heady mixture uh, for radicalizing, radicalizing a lot of young men who feel disconnected and don't feel they have a stake in a community and are very disenfranchised. Um, and now my point is that, you know, Shada's point was about political engagement, but what about engagement with imams? Because part of it, that continues to be the case in Europe, in, in mainland Europe, you still have the importation of imams yes. with a very, very significant message that's having an impact on young people. Yes, and it, it is a problem because we have imported imams from outside uh, because we lack uh, imams in, in the European countries. So we import uh, people who have a longer education within Islamic studies but they do not know the language, they do not know the culture, and sometimes 
there is a great distance between the people who come to the mosque and, and the imam. My father, he goes to one of the grand mosques in Denmark, and he's very happy about the imam there. So we should not generalize. There are a lot of very excellent mosque communities all over Europe. There are lots of imams who are doing a great job mm -hmm. and who are working both at a humanitarian level and a, at a theological level. But we also have imams who are creating problems and who have a very patriarchal uh, reading of the Quran, which uh, creates problems. So we have to face that problem. I do believe that the Münster model is an example that we could export to the rest of Europe and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. The Münster model that I explained earlier they have started an Islamic center for Islamic theology, and they educate a new generation of Muslims. Even people who are attracted to Salafism, they come to the center mm. because they actually, what differs from the normal university where they study theology is that the, um, um, the fact that you are practicing Muslim, it counts. So they combine a historical, critical approach to religion with being a practicing Muslim, with the faith. So I think that combination is good. And you, they have 800 students, Muslim students. So they are educating a new generation of Muslims who will have a more uh, progressive, enlightened interpretation, spiritual interpretation of, of Islam and, uh, and of Islamic theology. Okay, thank you. Two questions here, one here, and then I'll come to you. Hi, thank you for sharing Hi. your story. My name is Jamila from the Netherlands. Um, I was in California, Los Angeles a half year ago and visited the California Islamic Center and we were greeted by an almost all-female board. So it's nice to see the change spreading all over the world, bits by bits. But my question was um, is about um, kids and I'm happy you brought up the story about your daughter. And I was wondering if and if so, how you involve and engage kids in changing the practice and the structure in, in the movement that you're growing? Thank you for your question. Yes, uh, children are important because they are the future. And um, actually, there was a part of my story that I left un was left untold because I told you that I was brought up in a family with a fem feminist father. And both my parents, they raised me with lots of liberty and, and in a spiritual environment, even though my mother, she's a Christian, and my father is a Muslim, it, was, it never created problems in our home because they were both curious and they were both open to each other's religions. So we went to the church with my mother. She is fasting with us. So, and we, we celebrated Eid and we celebrated Christmas. It was all very natural. When I, uh, when I married... And my father, he always told me that you can marry anyone, of course, but don't bring home a Pakistani. So, uh, because then we will be bombed back 300 years in time. So don't fall in love with a Pakistani. And of course, I fell in love with a man who had Pakistani roots and who, <laughs> sorry if there are any here with Pakistani roots, are there? Oh, sorry. And... Um, and he was the most beautiful man I ever saw in my life and also an activist. And of course, I fell in love with him. And when he came to ask for me, he came without his family because they refused the wedding because I was not, I didn't have Pakistani roots. And my father looked at him and he was really sad and he, 
He said to he asked he told him that how will you marry my daughter? You haven't even brought your family, and if you can leave your family, you will leave my daughter one day. And he said, no, I didn't leave my family. They chose to leave me, and I will marry your daughter, and I will, I will still fight to have the blessing of my family while we are married. And then, um, yeah, eventually we married after a lot of yeah a critic period. But I realized that even though we were really in love and compatible at so many areas, he was raised in a very patriarchal family. And the structure was extremely patriarchal. And when, when we got children, we had difficulties because I think that when you get children, you, you, you think back about how you were raised yourself and it really affects you. Maybe not when you are young, but when you become a parent, it affects you. So actually, I had my difficulties and I had my share of sorrow in my marriage. I divorced recently. When I started the mask, he was 100% behind a women's mask. But when he found out that I became one of the female imams, he said that you have to choose between your family and being the female imam. So he supported the cause, but he didn't want his wife to be the female imam. And um, so there are sacrifices. And of course, our four children, they're very strong, but they have witnessed this... Um, I mean, mm. it, it also has consequences when you create that kind of change. But I think that even though it's difficult, they are witnessing, they are, they are being brought up with a mother who is a female imam. So to them, it's natural now. And they go to the mosque with me sometimes on Friday when I, when I can, uh, when they are allowed to go instead of going to school. So it's, and it affects them. And children come to the mosque and they witness a female imam leading the prayer, disseminating a message, maybe with a focus on gender equality, which is the case in our mosque. And of course it affects them. So it will affect the families. And this is why I do believe that it's so important that we inspire other women and that we create lots of mosques around the world with female imams, or at least that we allow women to enter the chair and to give the khutbahs in the existing mm. mosques. I mean, that would be the, the best thing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. You're thank welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. I'm just a little bit curious about the issues you are discussing or uh, delivering in the khutbah, in Juma khutbah. Uh, are they only for women or uh, you have like different uh, issues? Another question, until this point, is we are seeing like a mosque uh, for women and uh, female imam, or I would like to call it imama because imam is still a singular word in Arabic. So, uh, masculine, sorry, masculine, masculine yeah. word, and yeah. the imama is the feminine yeah. <laughs> like uh, word, so imama. And uh, do you think uh, we can uh, see in the future uh, imama who is like um, leading women and men? Vote, not only uh, women. Thank you. We also use the term imama. It's actually, it's funny, like uh, we have created a new term. Yes, it's already happening. We have mosques, uh, different places in the world, with uh, women leading the prayer for men and women. Um, Rabia Müller, she's a female imam in Köln, Germany. She leads the prayer for both men and women. 
Seran Atesh, she led the prayer for men and women in Berlin. She started a mosque recently. In Canada, they have uh, progressive Muslims. They lead the prayer for both men and women. Uh, Amina Wadud, who has written two books about Islam. One is called uh, uh, Women and Quran, or Quran and Women, and Inside the Gender Jihad. I can recommend her rereadings of the Quran. Uh, she also led the prayer for both men and women back in 2005 in New York. And then she traveled around leading the prayer for both men and women. So it is actually happening different places in the world. Sure, but all your examples, if I may, if I may cut across to you, um, your, all your examples are not in the areas where uh, you have the conditions which are very different, like, for example, Jordan, uh, North Africa, Middle East. Uh, is that where you were going to go? <laughs> I think actually, I think it is already happening in, in some Muslim countries, but I don't think we know about it. I think that there are women who lead the prayer for other women in different mosques. Yes, for men and women, no. No. But I think that um, to me, actually, what is most important is the khutbah, because when you disseminate the message, exactly. it's the message, message that has to go out to the world. So our khutbah, they are, you know, we're in the process now. They're, they are online, so anyone can hear them. So, and because the prayer is ultimately about Allah, it's about God. So it's not important whether it's a man or a woman. It could be a man or a woman. It's really not important. What is important is it's that you have this, you create a space and you create a community. And it's it's the need of the community that counts because being an imama or an imam is primarily about servanthood it's about serving your community and sure. serving the needs of your community but there is something symbolically powerful of, of an imama in muslim countries that uh, not, notwithstanding your statement you know absolutely it's about the prayer and what the call is about but actually the symbolism uh, and the importance of that for the kind of patriarchal structures to be be thought through is critical. So uh, I wonder if you'll ever be invited over to certain countries uh, to give give the prayer. Uh, you never know; it might it might come about. People, I'm really sorry. I have hellishly run over time, and I'm really sorry for for you uh, for that. And I I promise you, what I'll try and do is give you the opportunity to ask a question. Uh, thereafter, so I do apologise, but otherwise we're going to crash into it. And I've got all my colleagues looking at me like, "What are you doing?" Um, so I'm sorry. I will conclude. Thank you so much. It's Thank been uh, um, it's been precious and it's been special. And you've been and you, you've kind of given a lovely uh, narrative, poetic, spiritual arc to the day, um, given the conversations we've had. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you very much for being so honest and sharing thank your you. story with us. <laughs> thank you so much. I just wanted to end with a small story. I'm half Arab, so you have to forgive me. I go over time. <laughs> it's uh, my two boys, they, they love to play chess, though they play chess every evening. And um, they are nine and ten years old. So they were playing chess, and I told them that, are you aware of the fact that Skak Met, a uh, chess mate, it's called Skak Met in Danish, um, it comes from the Arabic Sheikh Mat or the Persian Shah Mat. And it means that the sheikh is dead. And then uh, my youngest or oldest daughter, she said, be aware, little ones, 
the sheikh is dead, long live the female imams. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And you know, I won't forget that statement, which will end on the day as well. The best man is a woman. Um, which, which we won't actually forget that for a long time, for a long time.